Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Cinemaholics. I am your regular co-host, John Negroni, and I'm joined by Will Ashton. Hi, John. And Julia Tatey. Hey, guys. Now, in our main episode for this week, we covered Spider-Man Far From Home, but we wanted to reserve a, a special bonus episode just for talking about the new folk horror flick from A24, Midsommar, or Midsummer, which was directed and written by Ari Aster, and it stars Florence Pugh, Jack Rayner, Will Poulter, William Jackson Harper, and Wilhelm Blomgren. Aster directed and wrote last year's Hereditary, which is also an A24 film. And, you know, Hereditary was a pretty surprise hit at the box office and was a surprise favorite of the year among critics, including friends of this show. If I recall, I think in our top 10 movies of 2018 episode, I think a few people had it on their top 10s. Somebody might have even had it as their favorite movie of the year. I want to know from all of you, because Will and I have talked about Hereditary before, but Julia Tatey, what, what did you think of Hereditary? I really liked Hereditary. I think I remember it was one of my top 10 of the year. I'm not really quite sure if I can recall where in my top 10 it was, but I really enjoyed it. I loved the dread-inducing atmosphere. Tony Collette's performance is just completely out of this role world, as well as uh, Alex Wolf, who I don't think was talked about quite as much as he should have been last year for his performance. It had a lot of really fun twists and turns that if you avoided reading any spoilers or anything, just made the experience all the more fun. It was just a really great combination of horror commentary on maternal grief and um, the positionality of women as mothers trying to hold their families together. Just a great time all around. Yes, I I didn't love Hereditary. I've talked about it in the show before. I really wanted to like it. I remember walking into Hereditary, walking into that theater, and my mentality was, I want this movie to mess me up. I want to be spooked. I want to be scared. I want to be grossed out, creeped out. And I was a lot of those things. But for some reason, the ending just didn't get me with Hereditary. But at the same time, I, I think even with my own described limitations of this movie, I could not wait to see it what Ari Aster would do next. It turned out he was working on Midsummer while Hereditary was coming out. So that's why Midsummer is already coming out this year. And I'm pretty excited to talk about this film. It's been kind of taking the film community by storm. A lot of people have been really liking this film. There have been a few people it's not quite working for them. I hope we can talk a little bit about some of the things that we didn't like with this, some of the things that some critics and um, you know, regular movie folk might be having an issue with when it comes to Midsummer. We'll talk about it all. But of course, we're going to keep this spoiler-free for now. We'll do a spoiler section toward the end. And again, we're just talking about Midsummer in this episode. And to be honest, I, I'm not super prepped for this. I, I don't even know what I want to ask the two of you about this movie. So we're going to try to make this as organic as possible. Should be a lot of fun. Before we get started, though, Will Ashen, remind us, Midsummer was this on your most anticipated movies of the summer list when we did that episode earlier in the year? Absolutely. I mean, I definitely, I think next to Godzilla had this at uh, in my top three for the summer. And uh, yeah, I was really excited for it. Okay. I vaguely remember you looking forward to it. Glad I wasn't imagining that. Uh, I think I was actually listening to the summer movie preview episode earlier today. I didn't get to the part where you talked about Midsummer, but... Yeah, for sure. I think as soon as that first trailer came out, we were all on board for this one. It, it's definitely a unique film, not the kind of film we normally get in theaters, right? It's two and a half hours long. 
It's set entirely, almost entirely in the daylight. Let's talk a little bit about what this film is, though. Uh, it's set in the modern day, and it is about a young woman and a group of friends, one of them being her boyfriend, uh, who she's dated for years. Uh, the woman is played by Florence Pugh. Her boyfriend is played by Jack Rayner. And they go on this trip to Sweden because one of Christian's friends, her boyfriend, one of his friends is a grad student who is from this commune in Sweden, like rural Sweden. And he invites all of his grad school friends, but being three anthropologists, Jack Rayner, Will Poulter, and William Jackson Harper, to visit his village, get to know his family. And one of them is working on their thesis in this place, learning some of their folk traditions and things like that. And Danny, again played by Florence Pugh, she decides that she wants to tag along. And this is a trip where, eh, you know, they have a few hallucinogens, kind of vacation, but also research into what this this village or commune, whatever you want to call them, is about. And then, as you can imagine, some truly horrific things start to happen. Julia Tatey, what would you say to somebody who maybe they haven't seen the trailer for this? <laughs> what, what, do you think this movie is accessible? And then maybe we can lean that into what do you think of this movie overall? Yeah, I think that for maybe a more casual moviegoer going into a horror movie like Midsummer, I think that they should prepare more to be disturbed and unnerved and feel very uncomfortable and have the movie get under their skin more than to be kind of jump scared and surprised by the things that happen. It, there's a lot of really slow kind of cringe and sweat inducing lead ups to a lot of the things that happen in Midsummer, which I think works so effectively to the film's advantage. But it's definitely something that's a lot more disturbing and pretty graphic in some instances. Um, and that's something that I really think that people should prepare themselves for not to be um, not to have their expectations lowered, but to kind of go in with an open mind, knowing that the broadness that is the horror genre is really exciting. And I think that Ari Aster really takes advantage of the more disturbing and atmospheric aspects that horror as a genre offers. All right. What about you, Will Ashton? No, you're really looking forward to this movie. Did Midsummer meet your expectations? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, similar to Julia, I just wanted to see something um, not only from this filmmaker again, but something that was willing to break the mold as far as the fairly procedural uh, summer blockbusters that we've been getting throughout uh, this season. And I think, uh, you know, it's just for many different reasons that we've mentioned already and some we haven't yet. Uh, it felt like a nice change of pace. It felt like, you know, very stylistic, very filmmaker driven two and a half hour experience that was you know, personal, but also uh, influence uh, different horror movies that we've seen before. So, uh, and obviously the cast, I mean, Florence, uh, Florence Pugh, and um, I'm, I'm blanking on, is it Jack Renner? Jack Rainer, Rainer yeah. Rainer, Rainer, and then Will Porter, and then a bunch of other uh, actors who I'm not quite familiar with. Uh, I know the one actor's from The Good Place, but I haven't watched that. Uh, yeah, William Jackson Harper. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was just uh, definitely on my radar, and I'm very glad to say that it did not disappoint. It was, uh, I think, pretty much exactly what I wanted it to be, which is just a weird, dark, bleakly funny uh, into what a relationship is and uh, kind of like a larger-in-life 
take on that while also having a lot of different strange avenues and different ways of going about that. And definitely with the runtime allowing Ariaster to kind of like let a lot of things fester, let a lot of different things kind of go on longer than you anticipate, which I think was for its benefit because it just kind of lets you feel things a little more unsettled. Like I think, uh, especially with Hereditary, where like there's this, this ongoing sense of dread. With this, it's kind of like a bit of a crescendo. It's like you're kind of building up to like what you pretty much know is going to happen because the movie is not very shy about kind of revealing like the little details and little key pieces that are going to be coming into play. But I think that's kind of part of its charm is that it has that kind of fairy tale quality to it, where you kind of, or I guess more like a folk tale quality to it, where you kind of you have a general idea what's going to happen, but you don't exactly know how it's going to go about. And I think the fun is really just seeing what dark avenues it decides to go in its destination. I actually think that fairy tale description is apt. It it does have sort of the storytelling of a fairy tale or a fable in a lot of ways. This is a movie where there is a lot of foreshadowing. There are a lot of deeper meanings in everything. I, I was thinking in the aftermath of this movie a lot about Jordan Peele's movie, Us, uh, in that same way. Us mm-hmm. was a very metaphorical film, and it was hard to take literally. Midsummer is kind of its evil twin, not in a bad way. Did you see the Fangora interview that Jordan Peele had with Ari Aster? I, I didn't see the interview, but I heard Jordan Peele. He saw a very, very early cut of the film, and then he just gave effusive praise about Midsummer, basically saying that it, it's the film that's going, the people are going to be drawing upon comparatively in the horror genre for years. So yeah, he was quoting the trailer. Yeah, definitely the highest praise I think you can get from a film director at the moment uh, in this genre. I mean, Jordan Peele is like a breakout, breakout success story. And Ari Aster is to an extent as well. Hereditary was a, a pretty big hit last year. And like we said, and Midsummer definitely has a totally different angle in mind, it feels like. This is not a film that I think was made for the masses, but at the same time, it does feel like a very important film. It feels like the sort of film that while you were watching it, you just can't help but feel like you're watching something special. Like watching something that is just masterful on display. And not everybody is agreeing with that. I've seen a few people kind of look at this film and take a few issues with it. Uh, I want to talk about them more specifically once we get into more spoilery discussions. But yeah, Julia, so you, you sort of mentioned that this didn't quite reach up to hereditary for you. And without getting into specifics, yeah, wh- where would you say this film was probably probably not working for you the most? Well, I really think that one thing that Ari Aster did so well with Hereditary was have a balance between atmosphere and commentary on such an equal playing field. With Midsummer, I felt like the atmosphere was just taken to such great heights and it worked so effectively that for me, some of the broader commentary on Florence Pugh's character, Danny, and what she's dealing with throughout the film just kind of got muddled and lost and kind of became a lot more broad and expansive than what I found was so specific with Hereditary. That's so fascinating because I had such a different takeaway. So I'm excited to talk about this more (laughs) because yeah, we can talk about the performances too. I I definitely think that Florence Pugh, with every movie I see her in, she just continues to make the case to me that she is one of the most talented actors working right now, uh, male or female. I I think that the first film I saw her in was Lady Macbeth, and we talked about it on this show. (laughs) And I just remember, well, yeah, if you recall, like 
we we have just been watching this actor who didn't have any formal training, uh, doesn't come from a fancy acting school or anything like that. She is just, I think Ari Aster called her this, a natural. And that's the case. I, uh, I think Dave White said this. Uh, I loved it. He talked about how she she just he he forgets she's in the movie or doesn't even know it's her when he's watching movies she's in. Uh, totally. Her performances are so great. Like she's yeah. just able to. She's a. I think somebody else called her a chameleon. I think it was also Ari Aster, and I think that's great because I I just this is the same actor who was in Fighting with My Family, and I just find that unbelievable in, in a great way. I was just going to say that uh, Florence Pugh kind of on the trajectory that she's going with her career, one of my favorite actors to watch and having watched them for a couple of years now has been Carrie Mulligan. And I feel that Florence Pugh has kind of the same thing that Carrie Mulligan is going for, where she kind of just lives in the skin of these characters and all of her body language and all of her movements seem so organic instead of rehearsed. So yeah, just going off of that, can't praise her enough. I agree with both of you. Um, I think, yeah, just like what you're saying, John, I mean, when I saw Lady Macbeth, that was a huge surprise for me just because I really didn't know anything about the film going in. Like I just thought, oh, it's like going to be like a Shakespeare adaptation or something. Uh, and then, yeah, like I was blown away by her performance. I was like, whoa, where does she come from? Uh, I, I, then from there, I saw, you know, like you said, fine with my family. I saw the commuter and then I think I saw something else with her in it. And like every single performance I've seen from her, like they seem wildly different. Like only if I knew who the actress was, would I even in a million years guess that this is like the same actress. And yeah, like you're saying, Julie, I think just the way she feels very intuitive in her performances and the way that feels a lot more organic to the scene, especially in this film where it's like a lot of long takes that kind of rely on the central performer to kind of guide us along through long extended periods of time. I think it's really a testament to her acting that she's able to carry this film so well. She does carry this film. I think that's fair to say. We, we also have to mention she was, of course, in Outlaw King. Can't leave that out. But yeah, every every movie I've seen her in, I, I've just been further impressed by her. And I think what she brings to this movie is such a relatable, such a relatable character, uh, such a relatable person. There, there is a scene in this movie very early on where she is apologizing for something that her boyfriend has done to her. Yeah. And the fact that she can sell this and remain not just sympathetic, but somebody who you want to see realize her her true potential and she is she is the heart and soul of this movie i don't think the movie works without her and i'm so glad she was cast in this role i think that a lot of the other actors in here are given a very complicated task and we could talk about them individually but i do want to pay special uh, close attention to jack rayner who has to pull off a role where he is yes he is a bad boyfriend but he is not cartoonishly bad he is subtly bad. He is a subtly terrible person who you only start to see how bad he is over time and you start to understand his quirks and you can start to understand why someone like him and Danny would be in a relationship for this long and neither of them go out of it, even though you can just tell they don't want to be in it, uh, at least to some extent. I mean, I don't know if it subtle is not necessarily the word I'd use, but I do think because there are like a lot of red flags seen throughout the film, but I think there's just something very believable about the way that he's kind of scummy yes and that like i could definitely see like people being like especially like for the couple in this movie who have been together for like a long time where they're just kind of like blinded and kind of jaded by like what the like different things like this are like but like obviously as like a 
like you know third person watching you can clearly see like all oh, this these people should not be together for many <laughs> yeah. different reasons but yeah i mean you can understand through like their interactions and stuff like why they stay together and why they have this kind of uh consistency as a couple even though like it's very clear that they are very much like opposite sides of personalities and probably should not be spending any more than a second with each other <laughs> yeah the the subtlety i think is in the toxicity not necessarily like you sure. know what he's doing is wrong but you can see why he doesn't think it's wrong. That, that's sort of what I mean. You can sort of see why he is deluded into thinking he's actually the good guy, right? Absolutely. And you can see somebody watching this movie and be and relate with him and not even realize. I, I can absolutely see somebody watch this movie and completely miss how terrible he is and think he was just a normal good guy and like bad things happened to him or whatever. And just trying to have a fun trip with the boys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Julia, what, what did you think of this central relationship? Did it ring true for you? Absolutely, 100%. Not just because these it was a relationship that I feel like was believable because I've seen it before, but because I've experienced it before too. And I think that what you were touching on, John, about the toxicity of Christian's character being that he's the kind of guy that, as you were alluding to, you look at him and you don't see the toxicity because it's not so overt. It's very uh, introspective. It's very uh, subtle, if you will. And just so much of the small choices, I think, to Jack Rayner's uh, uh, commendation, the choices that he makes in terms of some of his body language and the looks that he gives to Mark and Josh, uh, Will Poulter and William Jackson Harper's characters and how he interacts with Danny. Even at one point, there was a moment where he kind of uh, schleps her off, if you will, and she's trying to have a very uh, a concerned conversation with him towards the end of the film. And he's having another conversation kind of almost shoes her away with his hand if if that's the i think that's the thing that i'm going for but yeah it's i i have known men like christian i have been around men like christian before and kind of that um what i think florence Pugh conveys so well as danny is this really high intelligence for emotion and uh her empathetic intelligence and that is something that i think christian is just completely lacking as a character and it makes it so well written to see these two try to have conversations and figure everything out but it just that lack of emotional intelligence which is something i've seen before is ultimately what really kind of makes christian such a toxic character that you just really don't want danny to be with anymore it, yeah absolutely emotionally distant in a lot of ways, just doesn't seem to be, he just seems checked out. And we've all seen relationships like that. And it, it's an interesting dynamic to put into a horror film. I don't think we see that too often, and I'm all about it. Yeah, he kind of has this mentality of the bare minimum is the highest standard for what I, he should it. put into the relationship. The the bare minimum, you say? Yeah. The, yeah, the yeah. bare Okay. <laughs> Are we going to talk about the bear? <laughs> there is a bear in this movie, yeah. but we'll talk yeah. more about the bear later in spoilers. <laughs> I do want to bring up some of the religious parallels in this movie. Obviously, when you watch it, it, it's very easy to see that, as many people have described, including the director himself, it is a breakup movie. Not in the sense that we're not saying necessarily that these two characters break up, maybe not even in the traditional way, but it it is this sort of like slow sort of 
resolution to a relationship. That's kind of what is at the beating heart of this movie. And as you're watching it unfold, it is in the trappings of what amounts to a pagan cult run amok in this isolated Swedish area. We're not going to get into specifics, of course, of what they're about, but it's it's safe to say that they're very quirky, and they are the sort of place where I could not help but see that Aster was drawing direct parallels between this sort of weird folky religion with some of the more mainstream religions. And we can get into more detail later, but the symbolism is all over this movie. There are overt references to a lot of Christian traditions, and as somebody who grew up very religious, this character is named Christian. It's not supposed to be a secret, but I do think some of this conversation about what this movie is saying about religion, religious people, and evangelism is sort of getting put to the wayside in favor of conversation, rightfully so, about relationships and and things like that. I hope we can talk about more of this later, but Will, did, did you pick up on any of this stuff while you were watching it? Did you think about religion much when you were watching Midsummer? Certainly in parts. I mean, I don't think... I was focused on that specifically quite as much as the relationship commentary and some of the other things it happens to talk about uh, throughout the film. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly a central element of the film. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I can't really give any examples, I think, yet, because you want I probably want to save those for spoilers. But uh, yeah, they're certainly there, I think. Sure. And uh, what about you, Julia? Yeah, I could definitely see throughout the film, and we've talked about this before, the kind of different connections to different religious traditions. I think that the entire time I was thinking more along the lines of uh, fanaticism, which doesn't necessarily have to fall within the same the same area as religious uh, uh, followings. I think that fanaticism almost automatically always has this negative connotation to it. It's pretty broad in terms of its leanings, uh, either politically or religiously or uh humanistically, if you will, uh, survivalist, if you will. Um, So I think I was along the lines more of fanaticism, but I can absolutely see the connections between different religious traditions, especially Christian traditions. And I think that those observations are extremely valid as well. Right. Yeah. Before before we wind this down, because we we do want to get into our final thoughts and everything, I have a very, very simple but probably deceptively simple question. Julia, do you think this movie is scary? Hmm. I will say, as someone who appreciates a good spook, the, the word that I just keep coming back to is disturbing. It's very disturbing. It's very unnerving. I think for casual moviegoers, this is one that you're going to have to kind of, you know, prepare yourself for and say, all right, I'm going to see Midsummer. I'm going to dive in wholeheartedly and openly. I wouldn't say... Mm, that's so strange because scary can be such like a broad spectrum as well as different mm-hmm. uh, emotions that are brought about. I just keep coming back to the word disturbing and I don't want to uh, go into more hyperbole or anything like that. So for some, I definitely think it's going to be scary, especially for people who haven't observed a film like this before, who aren't familiar with Hereditary or any of Astor's short films prior to. But I th- yeah, I'm going to go with Yes, it's scary for, and I think that alluding to, as you did previously, to Jordan Peele's Us, what was so scary was the ideas behind it, and not so much maybe the visuals that didn't work for some people. The ideas behind Midsummer and the commentary is definitely scary because it is so real and so prevalent in people's lives in terms of relationships and partnerships. But scary in terms of the visuals, there will be images that stay with people and haunt people. 
scary in terms of what I've experienced is scary before, not so much for me. Yeah, I think it, it's confusing because it's like you're saying, yes, there's scary moments in here. There's there's scary material. But it's weird because it is also funny. It's so funny. <laughs> it's also joyful. And it's it's a lot of emotions all at once. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to probably echo a lot of what you said, Julie. I think for me, like with Hereditary, that movie was a lot more directly scary for me as far as um, what it was doing and the context of it. I felt like that was a lot that hit me a lot closer to home than uh, Midsummer did because I feel like Midsummer was more like creepy than scary uh, or even quite as suspenseful. But I do think something that I've noticed when I've talked to people who've rewatched Tread Terry is that they've told me that like based on the structure of the film and the way things kind of play out, there's like a very bleakly funny tone to it the more you watch it. And I think what's going to happen with Midsummer is going to be the inverse of it, where for me, I think watching Midsummer for the first time, I was definitely more aware of the comedy of it. And I was definitely laughing a lot throughout the film. But I imagine if I watch the movie more throughout the future that I'm probably going to notice more and more just how disturbing it is and kind of like the context of the film in that light. So that's my takeaway from that. It's like a ha ha oh movie. I didn't know there was a category for that, but I'm glad I know that now. <laughs> In the broad spectrum of spooks, there is. All right. I think we've covered this film as much as we can without delving into specifics. So with all of that said, let's first say real quick, before we get into our final thoughts, this movie costs about $10 million to make, but it's not a huge box office hit. It's been out for a little over a week, and its box office so far is a little over $12 million. That's not bad, but it's definitely not those aren't hereditary numbers. And I think that that is to be expected with a film that's much longer than hereditary, a film that kind of has a more difficult selling proposition, I would argue, especially with its aesthetic. And yeah, just being a film that's clearly when you see like these trailers, I think people are probably telling it's, it's very weird and out there. And I I can see why some audiences are into it. A cinema score is a C plus, which to be fair, I think is a bit higher than I personally expected. Oh yeah. And, and critics are liking this film a lot. I, th- I think that it, so far it has an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. So 83% of critics at least liked it. And I think that that's a pretty fair, again, that's something that I think for a film this divisive and polarizing, that, that it's, it's nice that it's getting some appreciation because it's a film I very much enjoy. But we'll start with you, Julia. Uh, how, how, would you, how would you grade this movie? What are your, what are your final, quote, final thoughts? Because we're going to talk further. <laughs> your final spoiler for your thoughts, I guess we should say. Right. So kind of like what I was uh, alluding to, I think, earlier in our conversation, it's so atmospheric and it's so beautiful to look at. But for me, it gets a little bit muddled in terms of what Aster is trying to say. I think that Florence Pugh 100% carries this movie and gives an incredible performance. In terms of grading, I'm somewhere between a B and a B minus. Not really sure where I'm going to land. The more that I keep thinking about, the more I'm kind of moving towards giving it a B grade. But then sometimes the more I think about it, then I start thinking more negatives and then I go back to the B minus. So I'm, I'm teetering in between those. All right. So I think our goal is to, in the spoiler section, get you up to an A minus. Let's see what happens. <laughs> what about you, Will? Yeah, I was. Uh, I actually thought you'd be higher than that, Julia. So I'm a little surprised by your grading. But um, for me, uh, I would say like for the first like 45 minutes to an hour, I was like very firmly in A territory. Like I was really, really thinking it was like basically as like good as you could make it. Um, I think once the middle segment came in, that's where I started to have some issues with the movie. I think 
I appreciate what's going for in certain things. Like I'll talk about that more in spoilers as far as like some of the ideas it throws in during that segment. And I never thought it was boring, but I do think some of the things, some of the risks it takes in the middle are less successful. And then uh, I'll get into more, I guess what some problems I might have from there. But as far as the film, yeah, I'm definitely between a minus or B plus, and I'm going to give it an a minus. I really did enjoy this film quite a lot. Yeah. I, I unequivocally love this movie. I really do. I love it the more I think about it. I loved it while I was watching it. I love everything that Ari Aster is trying here. Like This is the film that I wanted Hereditary to be. The, the film that I think was way more cohesive and more tightly written, despite it being longer than I personally thought Hereditary was. That's interesting. I, I, I understand, yeah. I, Hereditary just didn't quite work for me in the way that I think it worked for a lot of people. But watching Midsummer, I, I just felt like I was truly watching this director's vision come to fruition and just everything from the performances to the production design, the sound of it, everything was just working really well for me. I, I have a few quibbles here and there. I mean, I think that I do think that the, the world that they created out here doesn't feel as lived in as it should be. Uh, as much as I like the production design itself, I think that it is a little bit too overt in some of the foreshadowing, even though I think that's a feature of the film. I think some of the artwork in particular, my biggest criticism, what holds me back from calling this one of my favorite films of the year, and it is one of my favorite films of the year, but from calling it one of my top five, maybe, is I don't think they, I, I think there is this use of a trope involving a deformed character that I think is just instantly dated. And I think was a, huge, huge miss and, and something that's completely unnecessary. And it really took me out. I, I think that, that was something where if if they could edit this film again, I, I think the film would be much better served just removing all of those elements because I don't think it serves the film. And I think it's just, it's the sort of thing that I, I, I just, I don't understand why it needs to be there. And I don't, I don't personally find it effective storytelling. And I think that's kind of like a fixation that Ari Arster, or Aster has, because I mean, that was kind of a theme in Hereditary as well. So I'm not 100% sure what that is, but something central to him, I feel. Sure. Uh, I, I would also say if you could throw poke a couple holes in this, I think that there are some aspects of the central relationship that I do question, and I, I don't hold it against the film, but I want to rewatch it, specifically with how I think Ari Aster is trying to talk about himself through this main character with her being a woman. And I think these gender politics that he's doing, they hit the right tone. But I wonder if I, I wonder if some of the writing is a little disingenuous. And, and that's just something I'm kind of working through as I think about this movie. But the fact that I'm even thinking about this sort of thing is what makes me really like this movie. So I guess that's the way to round it out. I, I'm just a really big fan. Uh, it's an A minus for me. So I'm, I'm right there with you. Well, I'm, I'm glad we're, we're kind of in the same zone. I think that I was sort of expecting to like this the most because I, I just walked out of the theater in a daze. I felt like I had taken something and I didn't. I watched the Stone Cold Sober. I'm glad I did. You, you don't need anything, you know, to watch this movie. I think it's a, it's a trip unto itself. I might suggest maybe not doing drugs while you watch the movie. <laughs> that might uh, put you in the overdrive. That's what we recommend. The Cinemaholics gang says, don't do drugs, kids. And you better believe that's our stance. Do science. Do science. <laughs> Play sports. You know that meme? Uh, no, I, that's, that's, that's a reference to a meme. I don't know. If, I'll send it to you if you don't know what well, I'm talking about. Well, my response but... to your meme was a community reference, which I think is more fun. Oh, I see. All right. Fair enough. All right. With that... We are going to start talking about Midsummer in full spoiler mode. So if you do not want to be spoiled on Midsummer, 
And if you're still here, because I just want to hear what they have to say. I don't care if I get spoiled. Get out of here. Go watch the film. Just do it. <laughs> just watch it. See what happens. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. And if you don't, uh, I think you might enjoy talking about it. But Midsummer spoilers start now. Where where should we begin, Julia? Let's uh, let's Dungeons and Dragons this. Where where would you like to start? Um, I'd like to start when they actually enter the commune. Let's walk in to this community with them. So one thing that I'd like to uh, bring up first. Scared already. Yeah. So one thing that I want to bring up first is there was actually a piece from Vulture, uh, part of New York Magazine, where Ari Aster talked about how Midsummer is going to be the Wizard of Oz for perverts. And one of the first instances where that kind of clicks as an audience member is as Danny and Christian and company are walking into this commune, they are walking on a path of yellow flowers. So that kind of symbolic homage to the Wizard of Oz and this kind of trip fantastic into this otherworldly place. I thought that was a really fascinating uh, little homage and kind of little nod to another movie that was pretty trippy for its time as well. I I definitely saw Wizard of Oz all over this movie. I I was talking about this with someone who was like, yeah, you know, there aren't a lot of horror movies that take place in the daytime. I wonder what Ari Aster and the DP were sort of considering. And we were throwing out different movies, like he mentioned Hills of Eyes and and Wicker Man. But I was like, Wizard of Oz, like the way things are lit and the types of buildings and the framing and all of that, this straight out of Wizard of Oz. And it's great. It's a great twist on that because Wizard of Oz sort of lends itself to a sort of horror atmosphere sneakily. And I'm I'm glad that they they drew so much from it because it kind of gave, in its own way, this film's own unique identity, I thought. Definitely. Absolutely. Let's let's talk about something that I think some some people have been been kind of iffy on this film when it comes to the beginning of it. So as we find out pretty early on, the film starts with a tragic murder-suicide. And I've seen a lot of people criticize this film because they didn't understand the connection between Danny's loss in the beginning of the film and the rest of the film. Uh, I'm not going to throw this critic under the bus, but in his review, it was one of his biggest criticisms. He thought that, well, they never bring it up again, and they didn't explain really what happened there. And I, I thoroughly disagree with it, but I'm curious, what, what do you think about how the beginning of this film leads into the rest of it? Uh, well, I mean, definitely from uh, Hereditary, we get the sense here that grief is going to play a big role in um, his work. And I definitely Grief, you say? Grief in a horror film? Yeah, I know. What, can you imagine the world? But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think in some ways it kind of felt like a response to Hereditary, although I don't necessarily think that's the case because I think he wrote this movie before he wrote. I don't know if he wrote before he wrote Hereditary, but I know he wrote it like four years ago. So he wrote it way before Hereditary. He wrote it while he was going through a breakup years ago. Right. Yeah. He, he said he's feeling better now. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I definitely I, I think compared to Hereditary, I definitely don't think it plays quite as key a factor. But I do think to undersell it that way would suggest that it, it 
I think it's just so key to who Danny is throughout this movie. And I definitely think it's key to how she processes the events that happen and how she kind of comes to realize um, like the scene with uh, her and the commune of women where yes. they're like grieving together. Let's talk about like it. that. Right. I mean, that's like such a response to that scene and like how like she's like so like emotionally frustrated throughout the film and like she needs like this way to like express herself and like her boyfriend's like the stone wall most of the time. Like he she, like, you know, she's like constantly like trying to like you know, uh, have like these communication, like have like this response. And anytime she really grieves, like that scene in the bathroom, uh, either in the um, department and the way it transitions at the airport, it's like always very private contained, you know, very like isolated. And then I want see in this kind of big sprawling bedroom, like she finally has like this uh, group of women who she can like kind of emote and they like, you know, they validate her grief. And it's like this kind of like strangely beautiful scene where she's able to finally like let how her emotions let out this like whale that has been, you know, gutting her throughout this whole experience. And like, you know, she's literally going to another country to kind of escape this horrible thing that happened in her life. And obviously, like, just going to a different place doesn't, you know, uh, take away the pain. And so I, I, I would say to, I mean, that response, yeah, I mean, I think grief is obviously, you know, not quite as, like, uh, tonally as much the central focus, but it's obviously very central to the story, the character, or main character of the film. Right. If, if My thing is, if you're going to make your horror film about grief, I, I don't have a problem with the idea of that. I just think that it's overdone with a lot of films. And what I like about this one is a lot to what you're saying. It's less about the act of grieving, and it's more about how grieving affects us. It's more about... It gives an actual framing for grief that is more accessible and relatable. Because in a lot of these horror films, the grief is always, I lost someone. And I kind of liked what Hereditary was going for, because it was more about, like... I just didn't think it it connected as gracefully as this, but the grief in that film was like grieving loss, but then also about how the evils of your family sort of transferred down. And to me, it was kind of sloppy in its storytelling, but in Midsummer, I think it's a beautiful story about how I know, but I think in Midsummer, I think it's a beautiful story about how the grief can correlate, the grief of actual loss can correlate with a relationship, how you lose somebody so important to you when you break up with them and showing how she's too afraid to break up with this guy because she's lost so much already. He's afraid to break up with her because he just, he doesn't want to feel bad about himself for doing that to someone else. That's kind of getting into how he's sort of just secretly a bad, not secretly, he's just sort of a bad person in a low key sort of way. (laughs) He's more ignorantly bad, I think. He's He is ignorantly bad. I think, yeah, like Julia said, just does not have that emotional intelligence, just doesn't understand what's truly best for her, and is very self-serving in that relationship. Yeah, uh, well, to the last point that you were making, I feel like Christian can be, as a character, can be summed up in the phrase, feelings are hard, <laughs> because he just <laughs> he just can't communicate feelings and emotions. Sometimes he just seems like this vacuous being that just it has tunnel vision in terms of trying to address the more intricacies of his relationship. But that's something that we can get into later. But yeah, kind of going back to uh, the beginning of the film, I think I totally agree with a lot of what you guys are saying, but I think even more at just its most, um, I don't want to say surface level because I don't want to take away from it, but Danny just loses her home at the beginning of this movie. When we think about it, she loses her entire family as wiped out by this horrible incident that happens. And I think a lot of that too just goes into this loss of identity of 
in terms of identifying with Danny, kind of going through those motions of, well, am I a daughter still? Am I a sister? I have this boyfriend. I guess I'm his girlfriend. So just maintaining that one relationship that she still has and holding on to it. Meanwhile, like you both were saying, he's just this wall of stone that is not giving, is not budging, isn't malleable by any means. So yeah, just kind of that dealing with that isolationism and that loneliness, I think is, those are some of the best moments. I know, Will, you and I talked about that scene specifically where she's in that kind of community room after seeing this other thing that Christian does where we can totally get into that. Um, And she just kind of takes refuge and she wants to isolate herself again. But then all of a sudden she has these women around her, around her, her, around her who are not only validating her grief and her complicated emotions, but they are sharing in those feelings with her. And I think that it is Mm -hmm. such, it's one of my favorite parts of the entire movie. It's so good. I, it's such a strange thing to watch, but just seeing women share in these really complicated emotions, seeing women scream and wail and yell. I was, I just loved that moment from the movie. In relation to Hereditary, I think what makes both these movies really work for me is that I think at their core, they're kind of talking about similar things. But with Hereditary, it's like obviously like this kind of like porcelain dollhouse approach where it's like every one of the characters, they have these horrific things happen. And they're just kind of stuck in this one place and having to deal with it, even though they, they don't really know how to communicate with each other and doing that. Similar to this movie, like the character, the main character here doesn't know how to communicate, but she's like going out of her comfort zone, like going into this big sprawling place. And like, she's kind of given this different response where she's able to finally like emote through this commune that she never expected to find a family with. And I think like, they're definitely similar ideas with both films, but I think he just kind of takes a different approach. And that's what gets me really excited about what Ari Aster is going to do as a filmmaker. Yeah. I think that that scene where the women are sharing in her pain is probably the most important scene in the movie because I think it it crystallizes the point of the movie where I think it's either going to win you or lose you because what happens next you have to understand why Danny decides to give in to this community and why she decides to do something that the Danny at the beginning of this film would never do which is be complicit in the death of her own boyfriend and to accept this community despite the atrocities that they have committed against the unconverted. And that's what brings me into this idea that this film, yes, it's about a breakup, but if you take that so literally, it's hard to reckon with what this movie is saying about breakups because it's essentially saying you need to kill the past, let it die, all that stuff. But uh, in that metaphorical sense, I think it works. Like, there's the idea of like burning up your possessions is what she's doing here. Uh, she literally is burning him up in a bear suit. She she is putting him into the symbol of a much more deadly creature. Uh, it sort of mimics the idea of like what we do in the aftermath of relationships is we lose. Uh, those people's friends. Uh, there's a reason all of the other characters are in that ha- uh, barn with him. Um, she's literally burning up the past, those relationships, because she has to move on. And that's why she's smiling in the end. And I think that's effective. But I think somebody can watch this movie and maybe kind of look at it and be like, oh, yeah, you've got to like hate the person you were with and all of this stuff. And I-, I think that there's another message here about what religion does to us. And I think it's in that scene. It's in the sharing of the pain scene, because that is 
is that is what compassion is in a very Judeo-Christian sense. Uh, you know, so it, in the Bible it talks about how you're supposed to have compassion, and compassion literally means to suffer with someone. Uh, it's a very Christian thing, and in modern eyes, and and in history too, compassion is what people have been using for a long time to convert people to religion. And so this movie is not just about a breakup, I think. It's also about how people turn to religion for healing. It's about how religion can be a huge force for good, like it is in that scene. But it can also dull us to the atrocities and the downsides of religion in a way that I think can be very bad. It can be you know, very negative for people. It can lead to a religion just really callously disregarding human life, sometimes literally. I mean, history is full of situations where religions that we would consider mainstream, and I think we would say, oh yeah, well, there, there's nothing wrong with that religion, believe in what you want to believe in. But this movie is kind of saying like, every religion has its atrocities. And I think Aster is sort of heightening this religion for the purposes of a scary atmosphere. But this idea of like, oh, well, there's a lot of like gaslighting going on in this movie, especially early on when they start to see some of the really messed up stuff happening. You you start to see like the parallels to mainstream religions. When, when a mainstream religion has something in it that's kind of kooky, people are like, well, that's just cultural. You shouldn't judge people. And then the characters who are like, no, that's terrible. Like they should not be doing that. Like this is, they're the one, they're, they're gone. <laughs> they, they disappear, don't they? And they kind of get shut down and silenced uh, pretty literally. And so- I drew a lot of meaning from that. And and I know like I've talked about this with people and I think people are like, John, you're being too mean to religion. But I, I really think that there's a good story in here about how religion can be as toxic as a bad relationship and how, yes, it can heal people and it can make people feel a sense of community that they don't get with their real families. And that's great. And that's awesome. I've seen that happen in my life. I've seen people really benefit from religion in that way. But religion can also be a huge force of terrible for people. And we can overlook the bad stuff because it healed us. And so that's why I struggle a little bit with like this idea of like, Danny gets what she wants. It's a happy ending. I think it, it can definitely, it's a it's so valid to read it that way. But I also think it's pretty tragic. I think it's tragic that this person who weeped for her family's loss in the beginning of the film callously disregards human life at the very end. And unless you decide to go full metaphor with the film, I think it's hard to reckon with. See, it's interesting to me because I the, the as far as the context of religion, I was thinking about more in the midpoint of the movie when they have like that ceremony with the elders and like how they kind of choose to sacrifice themselves like for the greater good of the community, kind of thinking that yeah. like what they're sacrificing is kind of more important than what their lives are like in that sense. Like they're not really processing what death means. That's what I was referring to with the gaslighting. Okay. I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think I didn't have that thought process throughout the movie quite as much as you did. Definitely. I mean, I definitely wasn't thinking about that specifically throughout the film, but your reasoning for it makes sense. I think there's a valid interpretation of that in the film. All right. Was there anything else Julia, like specifically with the ending, I mean, what were you feeling? What, what was your experience with that? Because it's so it's so out of the box. It's so extraordinary. Uh, what was your reaction? I have to tell you, I kind of had the a very similar emotional reaction that I had when I was watching um, Suspiria last year, where I was kind of smiling along with Danny the whole time at the very end. And yeah, I felt that the whole kind of burning out these relationships that were really toxic in her life 
I just, in the literal sense, sure, it's graphic, it's intense, it's ostensibly horrible, but in the metaphoric sense, it's a really great release to feel at the end of the film, especially having identified with Danny throughout the entire thing. Yeah, I, I was smiling too. I'll admit it. <laughs> I, I was I was like, yeah, sacrifice him. Do it. <laughs> that I whole saw, thing. I read, Do it. I read a, um, a kind of talk back and forth between Aster and Pugh and how they both interpreted the ending. And Florence Pugh kind of interpreted it as she has completely lost her marbles. And she's absolutely insane by this point. And so she's just kind of yelling and laughing and giddy out of just this release from the constraints of sanity that she has felt confined in. But then Aster kind of has, um, falls into a rating that we've kind of been alluding to about kind of like the burning out of relationships that were really toxic and detrimental and finding a community to connect with um, and so on and so forth. So I think those two readings are very interesting. I think that Florence Pugh's um, understanding of the ending and her positionality with it might be a little bit more uh, contained, whereas Astor's whole reading, especially having written it too, is a little bit more expansive and introspective. But both yeah. are extremely valid. We were kind of alluding to this before we started recording, but yeah, Julia, you brought up how it's heavily implied that Pele's character, his parents died in that same fire. So he talks about early on in the film that he lost his parents, but the commune accepted him. And so I think you can see Danny's future in that character in the sense that I don't think she's, she might be insane in that moment. She's obviously on drugs. Something's up with her, but she drank that tea and all that stuff. A lot of get out references, but when, when that's happening, when she's sort of delighting in this cathartic moment, you, you sort of have to assume that her future is the same as a lot of these smiling villagers who we, I think upon rewatch will notice that these characters are just, there's just a disconnect between what they say they believe, not a disconnect, a hypocrisy believe between like what they really believe in the sense of like, oh, we're, we're your hosts. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a part in this movie where Pele is like, oh, Christian's my good friend. I like him. And, I think he means it. I think he means it. And I think that there's just such a disconnect between that and what he knows that he's leading this guy to a situation where he's going to die. And I I think there's something very powerful about that. I think there are a lot of really powerful racial undertones in this movie too, uh, specifically with how the people of color are the first to die. (laughs) They're the first, there's like two categories of it too. There's the there are the people of color who are the first ones to raise the alarm bells. They're, they're like, the, what's happening here is wrong. They're quickly silenced and nobody nobody pays a second look. The movie just sort of storms on, even though you know something terrible has happened. And also super horrific where that one actor, I, I don't remember his name, but like he's still alive apparently when he's hung and strung like that. Uh, so truly, truly horrific stuff. But then also you have the person of color, um, the, the black character, William Jackson Harper, who is sort of just going along with everything. He's not questioning it because he's like the intellectual character. He's the one who's like, I'm just going to play along. Uh, I know this is wrong, but for my own ends, I'm going to continue with this. There's literally cultural appropriation in this movie because and you really start to see how terrible Christian is because he starts being like, oh, it's my thesis now. And so th- that was pretty overt. Um, Let's talk about um, these three boys that Danny goes on this trip with. I want to talk about Christian and Mark and Josh and kind of the 
um, the safe boys that are represent the quote unquote safe boys that are represented who are actually just really subtly slash overtly toxic throughout the right. movie. Well, they, they have an issue with her. Like they, they are just completely shutting they her do. out and it's very strange. Also a lack of emotional intelligence. <laughs> yeah. And we haven't talked about Mark much played by a uh, Will Poulter. So let's get into that. Yeah. So should we just go? character by character if you guys want to do that mom open to anything because i don't want to i don't want to have like a whole uh uh rant about men we want to hear your rants about men there's time for it (laughs) okay so let's start with mark because he's kind of the more obvious um toxic of the three to choose from he goes on the trip basically to just sleep with swedish women he walks around vaping, which is just kind of an extension of his pretentiousness, his lack of respect for the community that he is within, regardless of whether or not they're going to kill them or not. He didn't know that eventually. He didn't know that at the beginning. And I was going to say, he literally pisses on the... Uh, yeah, he literally the, pisses yeah. on their cultural artifact. Pisses I mean, on their hospitality. Mm-hmm. Is that a Trolls 2 reference? Yeah, it is. Hell yeah. Okay, we love that stuff. Um, but yeah, he's just so overtly just pretentious and toxic and disgusting he doesn't really he's not really there for the experience of being with this different culture he's there to take advantage of women to just have himself a good time to take drugs it's reminds me of a lot of white boys who go abroad and then just come back with their crazy stories instead of their or logan paul youtube videos uh, you see uh, um the tweet from logan paul like the week that this movie came out no, no. why we don't follow he, him on twitter no, i mean i don't follow him on twitter either but there was a tweet because the film community was tweeting this because it was like very reminiscent of the movie because he was on a plane he said going to sweden with my oh, boys yeah and he has no one next to him right and <laughs> someone uh tweeted out like midsummer 2 is gonna be lit <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's just like it's again kind of going back to seeing these kinds of relationships and knowing these type of people. I have known a fair amount of marks in my time, in my short time on this earth. Uh, They're very unredeemable figures unless something happens. Maybe if something tragic that happened to Danny had happened to Mark, we would have a completely different character, but I have just seen that kind of person walking through life before and they are just as vile as will poulter so well conveyed in the movie yeah so josh is a little bit more of a complicated character to talk about because i really wanted to root for josh i wanted to see him come out alive not just because i love william jackson harper who plays cheaty on the good place but because it seemed like at first he was really there to immerse himself within the culture to be respectful to kind of go through it but then by the time he gets to the point where it's right before he is killed off, not as brutally as we see with some other characters and what happens to them, but it's kind of, it reminded me of this kind of figure who immerses themselves in a culture in order to gain benefit from themselves for themselves. Mm, yeah. So he's kind of simply there for his own gain. He's not there in terms of, trying to gain this new knowledge, trying to immerse himself in an experience that is going to change him. It's just going to add to his thesis, see if he can take pictures to have in it, taking pictures of a 
sacred texts that he should not be touching at all, which ultimately leads to his demise. It just kind of reminded me of figures that we have seen that have kind of commodified people's cultures in order to gain uh, knowledge for themselves and then to be praised for that knowledge. Yeah, he was definitely a character I was much more mixed on because he's not, yeah, yeah, he, he, he was just a little bit, he wasn't a, he wasn't as big of a jerk. You see Mark and obviously Mark is like the, the, I think somebody referred to him as just like, he's just a goon. And what Mm -hmm. you see is what you get with him. We all know people like Mark, but we do know people like Josh too, who, yeah. Yeah. When, when push comes to shove, they'll, they'll be polite. They, they will say the things that they need to say to get what they want. And I, I, yeah, there's something a little bit more chilly, or chillier about who he is in the context of this story. Because yeah, when he does that part of the movie and is taking the pictures and everything like that, it, it is a bit, uh, it is, it's tough to swallow, you know? And, and there even, he even lets her have some of his sleeping pills. He wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He comes across just as very superstitious almost. And I think that there were certain moments, the moments that stuck, struck me that made me start to think negatively about his character is when he starts speaking to members of this community and he starts saying things like, oh, this other community that I have studied also does something like this or kind of trying to be on that level of knowledge with the people who live within this world that he is studying um, but then also trying to have a one-up on them and being like, oh, I also know of this other group that practices a very similar thing. We all know story toppers like Josh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's never it's never an overt toxic thing. But because we have known or we have seen people or men like this before, it just it it makes you uncomfortable. It gets under the skin because we know those types of people. And when we know them more intimately than the characters on the screen, we just kind of know the type of people that they would be in real life. Okay. We have one character left and I hope this leads us into that sex scene. Let's talk about it. Yeah. We're going to talk about Christian and then we're going to get to the push tush or the tush push in that sex scene. (laughs) So... (laughs) I mean, I think they both work. Push, tush, and tush, push. <laughs> Good. They're interchangeable. We're going to trademark it at some point. Copyright. Um, but right. yeah, Christian. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like we've, or I have, I feel like I have at least talked about Christian enough, who's just kind of this emotionally unavailable partner who feels as though the bare minimum just by being there, that's good enough for his relationship with Danny where he should be more whereas he should actually be more accessible emotionally and the phrase that I just keep thinking about with his character is feelings are hard and he's so unwilling to be emotive with her and really just have these conversations (laughs) and that first conversation yeah go ahead Will oh sorry I was just gonna say it's like that kind of mentality of like well I'm here what else do you want like Mm -hmm. you know like like I'm a shoulder to cry on. Isn't that good enough? It's like his like kind of rationale for everything. It just like, no, you have to have like communications. Like you have to like talk this out. Like it's clearly like much more than just like being the shoulder to cry on. But yeah, I, I digress. Yeah, absolutely. No, but absolutely. The fact that he doesn't tell her about Sweden. I mean, that, that, that to me was like, how in the world do you not tell your girlfriend, you're going to be gone for like a month or two months. And that made no sense to me why he thought that was okay. 
I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not okay, but I think his logic was just like, oh, well, I'll just be gone. And it's like, you know, I don't, she doesn't have to worry about it. Like, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. And it's just like this weird kind of like very like uh, selfish mentality of just like, yeah, you know, like you don't have to worry about it. I'm just doing my it's thing. a month and a half. Right. Uh, was he trying to break up with her? Well, yeah, I think there is that. And then also like, you know, it's like, I want to go on my trip with my boys, <laughs> just doing my thing. Uh, you know, but yeah, it's it's a very selfish, uh, irrational mentality. But at the same time, I can believe like a character, a person like that could, uh, like a person like Christian, could do something like that. So it wasn't like out of the realm of believability for me. Uh, also, going off of something that you brought up, Will, which I'm glad that you used this kind of phraseology of Christian thinking that just being a shoulder to cry on is enough, because in the beginning of the mm-hmm. film, right before the uh, title credits. We actually see him literally being a shoulder for her to cry on. And I think that that's such an interesting scene. And it's so darkly lit. And then compared to the scene that we already talked about where Danny is in this brightly lit, a lot of pastels surrounding her room, just wailing and crying and letting all of her emotions out and the women around her are joining in with her. I think that those two scenes are just like really interesting to compare and contrast and just kind of really elevate the whole commentary on Christian just being this emotionally unavailable character who has a lack of empathetic intelligence and just is not a good partner for Danny when she really needs him to be and probably wasn't leading up to that point. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what makes this being the follow up to Hereditary so fascinating is that like, like those first five or so minutes are like, you know, like what you expect from Ari Aster's uh, follow up to Hereditary. Then like literally have like the camera going out the window. And that's like kind of like the way of saying like, hey, you know, like now we're going out and it's like the world like beyond. Like I said, like Hereditary is so focused on this household, you know, not obviously the whole film's not in that house for the whole time, but it's very central to that family dynamic, very central to like characters kind of like stuck with each other and not really knowing how to process their feelings of grief and depression this yeah just a very interesting look for me at like how he's growing as a filmmaker and like allowing his films to complement each other in different ways and just the 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 detail of that screenplay too just to inject this in the fact that her parents die in the winter and then her birthday is in the middle of summer she's also in her mid-20s and she's in the middle of the age group that it tends to be on pilgrimage which is the mid-summer as pele sort of describes so just like all that stuff really lining up so well is a big credit to the screenplay i just wanted to put that in there because you know i just just given some reasons why i love this film just quick ones but back to christian Yeah, let's get back to Christian and the penultimate moment that solidifies his douchebaggery. So by the end of the film... I was going to say, (laughs) penultimate. When he shows his bare necessities. Yeah, Yeah, we'll go with... Yeah, let's... I like (laughs) penultimate. So by the end of the film, Christian has taken all of these hallucinogenics, all these different drinks, these things that will, what's the phrase, open him up to the influences. And boy, does he get open up to those influences. He goes off with this red-haired girl, a member of the commune. I'm forgetting her character's name. Maja? Yeah, she has a name. We should say her name. Uh, He goes off with her and finds himself in this weird sex orgy thing with all these women singing around them whilst they're naked as well and at one point while jack uh, christian is on top of this woman another woman goes behind him and starts pushing his backside (laughs) so that he can 
finish up and do the job and be another done. religious <laughs> another religious allegory uh the idea of like forced reproduction and um how it, it's more important to them like how reproduction is more important than than like actual human life in a lot of ways and how it's symbolized by these are the elder women of that village uh not just anyone and i, I thought that was all pretty pretty on the nose yeah but it's like the for that relationship between Danny and Christian is just so on the rocks throughout the entire movie. And that becomes the solidifying moment where I think as an audience, we know, okay, yeah, Christian is the worst boy by the whole thing. And where we really just sympathize with Danny, if we haven't fully at this point, then all of our focus is on her. We want to be in that communal room with her just screaming and crying. At least I did. Um, But yeah, it just, that's a, it's a really wacky, weird scene. And yeah, do you guys have more to add on that? And how? Uh, yeah, and did you how? have anything to add about the sex scene? Well, because, because my thing is that it's just when she starts singing, that's when I lost it. I'm just laughing like a <laughs> maniac. Nobody else is laughing in the theater. There's only like a dozen other people in there and I'm, I'm loving every oh, really? second of its, if it's insanity. Yeah. Like people laugh during the movie, but not a lot. I, I've heard it. Other audiences have found it far more humorous. People laughed in my audience during that moment too. Uh, my audience definitely had like a like outrageous response to that sex scene. There was definitely a lot of laughter during that moment. But yeah, I mean, I think everything you guys are saying is pretty valid. My only kind of minor criticism is that like there's that one edit where like you cut from uh, Danny and the girls like wailing, and then like they sync it up with the sex scene, which I think is fine. Like it's, I think it's well edited in that respect. But there's something about it I feel like that almost kind of undercuts the emotion of that scene weirdly because I know that the sex scene is intentionally very comedic, and I feel I mean I, obviously I feel like the scene we're talking about is very powerful between Danny and the girls, but I don't know. There's something about the edit kind of rose me the wrong way, and I feel like that this might be a mi- minor nitpick, but I don't know if you guys felt that way at all i didn't i didn't feel that way at all i'm not sure what the criticism is okay do you think it's like because the tones are so different or right yeah i think the sound editing is really strong i just feel like there's something about that almost kind of like undermines like why that is such a crucial scene in the film but i mean it's a very very minor like it doesn't impact or like it it doesn't hurt my grade of the film or anything like that just like a thing like eh, i don't know and you know maybe if i rewatch a movie that will bother me less it was just something i was like "Eh, i don't know i feel like that seems so powerful that it's like kind of like almost like taking a little bit of its power away to have like this, like, you know, smash cut to a comedy scene. Well, it's interesting. I guess, I guess the reason that didn't happen to me is because I didn't think of it as a fully comedic scene. So I wasn't, it wasn't making me laugh every time that scene happened. I think it made me laugh at first. And then I think it slowly became horrific for me, at least like as it went on. Because that's like the, when they smash cut to that, that's when they start doing like the tush push, I feel like. <laughs> that's like when they like kind of like bring up like, you know, they, they up the ante, I feel like. I'd have to rewatch it because I, I don't remember how the timing struck me. But yeah, it, and it's also I wonder if people also found it comedic, the whole like the when they're like breathing and grieving with her. I It's an interesting thing to bring up. What one ma- one nitpick I've been seeing a lot of, and I'm curious what you all think, because I, I don't I don't really agree with it, is this idea of like why would anybody still be there, or like how come how come nobody left when all the weird stuff started happening? I don't think they can. <laughs> well, th- I think that's part of it, but then like the the fact that they're not willing to, right? Like there's at no point in this movie, which I really appreciate, at no point do our main characters are ever like we got to get out of here. 
like they all have pretty decent reasons for staying. And you do have two characters who are like, yeah, we got to get out of here. They disappear and we don't hear from them again. And I, I guess, I guess I don't understand that criticism, like where that's coming from. Cause I thought that the movie actually gave us pretty good reasons for why they would stick around. Right. Yeah. I mean, like even the only character I could conceivably see like leaving is uh will Porter's character. They already established that he's like, you know, pretty paranoid about a lot of things like mosquitoes and like during his like mushroom trips, he's got pretty paranoid. So I feel like if he wanted to leave on his own, he'd just like freak out about like, you know, what would happen if he was like away from the group and like not knowing where he is in a different country. So I feel like it makes sense for all of them to stay. And obviously, you know, uh, Danny is with uh, her uh, Christian and like, you know, they're Christian and um, the guy from The Good Place. What was his character's name? Josh. Josh, Josh. Yeah, he was They're obviously working on the thesis. So, I mean, it makes sense for me that everyone that would stay in. Right. Yeah. Cause the only horrific things they know about that happen are the ritualistic suicides. Right. And Will Porter's like, Maddie missed it. That was one of the funniest moments I thought for what? Me was when he was just, he, he's like, upset when, he missed it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I thought that was one of the funniest lines in the movie. Well, I was going to mention that too is like, yeah, the fact that he doesn't see it, you can kind of get like, oh, like, cause they don't seem to care because why, why would they feel like their lives are in danger just because like, this i this in this culture like the people who are 72 kill themselves i guess i can see why two characters would be like we got to get out of here but i actually kind of liked how in that scene you see how most people would realistically react like statistically speaking most people would be like oh i guess i'll just go along with this and i thought there was a nice little bit of commentary there of like when it's horrible sweden. things happen yeah when horrible things happen people usually are just like they go along to get along and they don't actually speak out they don't actually say like this is wrong and they don't stand up for what they probably should be standing up for like, and then the people who do are kind of looked at as crazy and they have to be dismissed. So that's kind of why earlier I was drawing that comparison to like, of course it's like the people of color because they're the ones who like kind of see this for what it is. And they're the ones who get picked off first. I thought it was interesting that the people who had the most visceral reaction to that uh, ceremony were the people who weren't from America. Cause I was, I was thinking that the movie would be kind of more like critical of how Americans are more emotional to this thing, but there is, I guess, something about the commentary film being like that yeah. Americans might be more desensitized to violence. Right. Even when it's like right in front of them. And I don't know. I don't know if that was intentional or if that's uh, just my read of it, but yeah, I thought that was pretty intriguing. Yeah. I think I like that's that reading. Yeah. It's a good reading of it. Uh, one thing I, I forgot to mention earlier too, uh, and the idea of like how you mentioned this earlier, Julia, how like Danny is like trying to isolate herself but they all crowd around her and i think i forgot to mention this but like what's so affecting about that moment is how they lead up to it right because in scenes before that you see her being so afraid to grieve in front of others like she's running out and she's like she has to have her panic attack in another location and it's interesting because in the beginning of the film you see how that's not happening with her and christian like she's crying on his shoulder so i'm curious like why do you think that at this point in their relationship, Julia, why do you think she at this point is trying to like hide it? Do you think it's because she doesn't want his friends to like see her do this? Or I, I was curious what you thought of that. I think it's become common practice for her. I feel like there are certain elements that seem all too familiar and all too rehearsed for her to be consistently doing for it to be kind of this thing that comes out of the blue. I think that speaking from personal experience and also just speaking from observation of Florence Pugh's brilliance in the movie, that 
it came across to me that she wouldn't want to be emotional in front of her partner and his friends because she doesn't want to be an inconvenience to him because she already feels as if she is one. And so by isolating herself from the situation, she is saving her relationship. She is able to get her emotions out on her own terms, but she's also, you know, serving Christian's need to, or lack of need to be there for her. I think that's well put. Yeah. But yeah, let's talk about the gore in this film and and some of those moments. I thought Hereditary had like that one scene, or not even a scene, but that one shot of a very, very gory effect. There, there are other ones, of course, too, specifically with Tony Collette. But this movie, I thought, really outdid so, some of those those really gruesome moments. Uh, how did the how did the gore and and the effects and and all that play for you? Well, did you find that it was it was well earned? Did you think that it was affecting as intended? What did you think? Well, I mean, I can only speak for me, but I really didn't have like that much of a visceral effect to the gore in this movie, and maybe it was just because I was expecting it with Hereditary. But I feel like that one shot in Hereditary was like way more like upsetting to me than anything as far as violence in this movie. But I don't know. Like I watch a lot oh. of gory movies, so uh, I didn't. I just didn't really have any reaction to it. I was just like, well, "That's a cool gore effect." So <laughs> uh, I guess that just speaks to me. That's how I felt about like the the cliff scene. I was like, "Oh, that's gory." I think what stuck with me was like their hollowed out bodies and um, literally, yeah, like when that one guy is like wearing yeah, that's Mark's body. That yeah. stuff. That stuff has stuck with yeah. me. Yeah, I would say that's that would be the only real like gore shot that stuck with me besides maybe the burning bodies but um yeah it didn't have quite as a visceral reaction to me than what i saw in hereditary it all seemed kind of pretty cartoonish to me i know that that's probably a very strange uh uh way to look at it compared to other people yeah i just i it mm, it was hard for me to have visceral reactions to it just because it was so outrageous and therefore so cartoonish to me. So I didn't really have that much of a problem with it. Those images stay with me, but they're not upsetting to me in the same way that they could be for others. Yeah, like me, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I think there's something about Hereditary using them way more sparsely that I think made them more affecting, whereas they're like more spread out in this film. So it wasn't quite as impacting in that sense. At least for me. Well, they save a lot of it for the end, though, because because we did address this, but the film is kind of slow, and it takes a while for stuff to happen. I mean, you don't you don't even see the cliff scene until like what halfway through the movie. So yeah, and then it kind of all happens at once. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that, but yeah, I can see what you're saying in the sense that like it was it didn't happen much in Hereditary at all. Like it was really like two parts of the movie, and. Yeah, I, I think I prefer Midsummer and the way it handled the staggering, but that just might be me personally. Uh, real quick, we haven't said enough of how good the cinematography is here. Uh, I think oh, the, yeah. the shot of them driving into the That's a great Sweden, one. it's a fantastic shot. It's like one of the best shots of the year, I think. Like, I just I I think, think about it should all the time. be taught in film classes. Oh, you're right. It should. It should. <laughs> just I like with some Game of Thrones content. The shot that really stuck out to me was like that, like, um, five minute single take when it like zooms in on them by the trees and like they like, kind of follow uh Danny around and like she's like having a trip and like it is able to kind of capture that like yeah distorted mentality while also like not breaking the illusion per se. 
and also shooting in broad daylight too while also having everything like nothing being completely oversaturated or anything like that unless it needed to be when it's like her really freaking out i thought from a cinematography standpoint that was pretty outstanding same here and then one last thing i have to bring up and then we can call it i the Here's the part of the movie where I just, I think I was fully sold. And I was sold the whole way, but this is when I was fully sold. And it's when Christian is sitting and Danny has just said something kind of passive aggressive to him. And you see his glass and it's like a darker color than like everybody else's, like the liquid. And he eats his bread and it's got pubic hair in it. And you immediately know why, because we literally saw a tapestry earlier in the film that shows like this ritual of, you know, it's like a love potion sort of thing. And the character who wants to be impregnated. Yeah. Yeah. I actually want to bring that up. So when I saw that, I immediately was like, oh, it's the Last Supper because his drink literally is blood and his bread is someone's body. And that's when I was like, yes, it's. This is great because that to me was just like, that's a fun, I like little things like that. Just little touches to sort of tie this film to what I think is its central thesis. And that, that was a highlight for me. We'll finish this out with Will. What was your highlight of the movie? If it was like a favorite moment or something that just really stuck out to you. I mean, that scene I was talking about before the drug hallucination scene was really, I think easily one of my favorite scenes and shots of the year. I mean, I do think the ritual scene is kind of, like, perversely funny in a way that I really enjoyed. Oh, I have to bring this up. The one scene that, for me, really spoke to the film, and John, can you guess what it is? I don't know. Nothing's coming to mind. Oh, really? Think about it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's about half. It's it's about four, a third of the way into the movie, and a character comes just when they are introduced to their lodging and saying, Hey, just let you know the group children are watching austin powers oh if you guys want to join us and i love that scene because of not course. only is it just like so funny in the way that like it's intended to be because it's just like so out of nowhere and strange but it fits the context of the movie because austin powers is about a character who is out of time in a different place so it's just like it was like a brilliant uh, little touch i thought no, not like, only that though not only that but it does help sort of make you buy this universe of like they're isolated, but they do like, they can send people out to like bring other people in. And that's a very effective part of the storytelling is you understand, Oh, like these people aren't just going out and they're completely unequipped. This isn't captain fantastic, right? Like they, right. And that's not a good comparison, but leave no trace would probably be a better comparison. Well, I was thinking like the village in that sense, the village. Yeah. Something like that. I also really enjoyed, um, cause I, I think what you were saying earlier, I don't quite agree with in that. Like, I think you said something along the lines like you like knew what was going to happen or something like like it wasn't like surprising in the sense that you were anticipating or something like that. I, I forget said exactly that? how you, or maybe not. I forget how. I just know something about the fairy tale aspect of it, and I wanted to just bring up that I felt like the movie, like I, I don't think it's intended to be like surprising and shocking in the same way that Hereditary is, like where like that one key scene like guts you and it's like oh like holy cow like this is where this movie's going. It went there. Yeah, I agree. And I like in this movie that it's like intentionally being like, like, like there's like paintings and stuff throughout the film. It's like, this is what's going to happen. You just don't quite know how it's going to get there. And I thought that the movie, like, for instance, like they allude to the bear. It's just like, why is a bear here? It's like, we'll get to that. And I thought what was going to happen was that like the bear was going to, um, you know, like maul Christian's character when he like wanted to leave the, the commune or something. Right. Because there is a painting that's sort of. Because right. there's like a girl yeah. kissing a bear. So you're like, oh, he's the bear. But you're like, oh, why? What is that? And yeah. then it makes sense later. 
Right, but then I thought the way that they incorporated the bear in the movie was like Ari Aster's like subtly weird way of like referencing the Wicker Man remake uh, in a way that obviously throughout oh, yeah. the film he's referencing mostly the 70s film and like that was like kind of like this weird like kind of like weird F you to like the remake is like this is how you should have done the Wicker Man remake you you dumb oh, the wow. sons of the guns I just thought that was kind of like a fun way to appreciate that scene I don't know if that was intentional or not but I just really got a kick out of that yeah, same here. I, I I didn't really think of the remake, but that's a very good yeah, because <laughs> uh, yeah, Nicolas Cage and uh. so Julia, close us out. Uh, I know you already talked about a scene you really liked. I think you said that the the sharing and the pain scene was very effective for you. Is there anything else though you want to highlight before we finish this out? The crowning of the May Queen. <laughs> oh yes, yes. Give it give it up for our May Queen, Danny. I thought it was really really great the colors are absolutely beautiful her crown and her whole wardrobe is great not to mention just when she is like officially pronounced the may queen having everyone kind of rush to her and embrace her and kind of fully indoctrinate her into this community and then her seeing her mom kind of through those swaths of people kind of as that identifier of oh this is her family now Sort of. And then by the end of it, Florence Pugh just being in that giant flower <laughs> garment looking like a Pokemon. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. And that just that awful grin on Pele's face. Another toxic male character in here. The one who, you know, this is making me think of religion too, but the one who like evangelizes under false pretenses or like he's your friend because he wants something from you. And yes. he wants, yeah. Absolutely. And he's just such a terrible person you know, steals, you know, a girl, you know, does all of these terrible things. And then he has that stupid grin on his face. And that's why people are like, it's a happy ending. It's like, not a happy ending unless that guy uh, is in the house too. So I, I did not like him. This is very brief, but the two guys they picked for the house, like to be like, uh, you know, sacrifices that like weren't acknowledged before that. Did you guys feel like there was like some scene with them that was like missing or Probably. like that was taken out in this? Probably. Cause like, there's like a, there's like a, like a, like a, like a 30 minute exchange where like they're looking at each other and they this kind of like tender remorse like acknowledging that's best for the commune but there's like this like regret that like yeah. oh yeah we're also gonna like have to go through this and i thought it was kind of interesting that like i don't know if there was more intended for that or those characters probably because there's well it was a three hour 45 minute cut and then Ari Aster, he says that there is a cut of this movie that's 25 minutes longer right that would be the director's cut and he wants to release it someday so we'll probably find out eventually all okay, right yeah i just didn't know if that was that shook you guys is kind of odd while you're watching as it well. It did. Yeah. I, I was kind of thinking, I know one of these guys, he's the one who basically, I, I, yeah, he killed two of the dudes, right? And I wonder if one of the reasons he wanted to sacrifice himself is because maybe he does feel a little bit of guilt in his actions and he just doesn't want to be alive anymore. I don't know. But the fact that he was wearing Mark, oof. I don't know, because it was like someone implying that they might have been lovers too. I wasn't 100% sure. Like if they were like if they were like romantically involved, like I don't know if that was like a reason they chose to like die with each other. I didn't see that, but it could be there. I don't know. That's what I mean. It's just kind of vague, so I wasn't hundred percent sure what I was supposed to be getting from that. Right, like it's right. obviously bittersweet, but it's like I don't know like what the intended emotion was. Totally. Okay. Well, we will probably find out eventually. But this has been a long, hopefully fruitful conversation about a movie that I think is very great. I feel like we could talk about this film for two and a half hours. But we'll just leave it at where we're at now. Uh, Thank you, as always, for listening. We'll see you on the main show 
Uh, for those of you listening, we are not going to be releasing an episode on time this week, unfortunately. More info on that, of course, on simhawks.com. But don't forget to follow us all on Twitter. Just go to the show notes so you can find myself, Will Ashton, and Julia Tatey. Connect with us. And don't forget to subscribe to Simhawks on your podcast of choice. And with that, from the Internet California, I am John Agroni. From the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Will Ashton. From the Internet in the middle of nowhere, Sweden, I am Julia Tatey. <laughs> See you next time.